We're going to be looking at Malachi, the whole chapter one, but I'm going to only read six to 14 because if you were here this morning earlier, I read one to five as an opening statement. So that's Malachi one, chapters six through 14. I think it was six months leading up to my ninth Christmas. I asked, I begged, and I pleaded with my parents to get me a 10-speed bike. I dreamed about it. I was making plans about it. Where would I go? Where would I ride it? Who would I let ride it? I even promised my friends, when I get my bike for Christmas, I'm going to let you ride it. Two of my best friends were making plans during Thanksgiving break about where we would go, what places we would visit, places we couldn't visit because we had to walk, but now we're going to have transportation. You really don't know how your mind can conceive your heart or deceive your heart and how the thought can consume you. It was Christmas, 1977. And everyone in the neighborhood got a 10-speed bike that year. Everyone, except me. My mom said we just couldn't afford it that year. Talk about disappointed. I was disappointed all year. My attitude was poor, and although I received a boatload of gifts, I could not find any place in my heart to be thankful. Every blessing I received, I turned it into a complaint. Not only was it not helpful, but it was harmful, especially to my soul. It affected everyone around me. No matter how my parents tried to point me to the direction of me being blessed, I always had some complaint to counter their words. In the passage we will study this morning, this was the attitude of the Israelites at this time. No matter what complaint they had, the Lord turned their tried to turn their focus away from complaining to being grateful. It happened to the Israelites during the ministry of Malachi, and it still happens to us today. That is why we want to look at this chapter this morning and get a biblical perspective on life. Biblical worship begins with being grateful to God. Biblical worship ends with being grateful to God. As we shall see in the text this morning, one way we engage with this biblical worship is to recall God's love. We're going to rest in God's care. We're going to revere in God's name. And we're going to rejoice in God's second coming. So I think that was enough time for you to get to Malachi. And this is God's word. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version of the Bible and it reads, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name, but you say, uh-uh, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? in that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? 
Why would, would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and as for his fruit, his food is to be despised. You may also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand? Says the Lord. But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. Let's pray. Father, make this book alive to me, O Lord. Show me yourself within your word. Show me myself within your word, and show me my Savior within your word. Make this book come to life to me. In Jesus' name, amen. So we want to look at the placement of this book, the book of Malachi. The time period of this book was 458 to 421 B.C. The construction and the rededication of the temple happened in 515. The prophecy of Malachi happened about 50 or 60 years after the rededication of the temple. The biblical chronology, this book is during the time of Nehemiah and Ezra, their time period. The newness of the temple had worn off and the passion the priests once had in their worship became prosaic. Can you identify with that? When you first came to the Lord, everything was so glorious and wonderful. And then after years and years, you say, ah, it's not so big deal. This is where they are. According to the author Baruch Maruz, a large part of the difficulty faced by the returns, returnees of the Malachi's time had to do with the dashing of their national hopes. When we put our hope in something, and it doesn't turn out the way we dreamed, we get disillusioned and skepticism and resentment settles in. We entertain that root of bitterness. I was actually talking about this this morning to a couple who was here quite early. When you think you're supposed to be here and you find yourself here, what happens? When you've put your dreams and your hopes 20 years ago, you said, I'm going to be there. And you find yourself here. What do you do? How do you respond? 
The Israelites had national hopes of victory. They imagined riding off in the sunset, doing victory laps around their enemies and celebrating being the head and not the tail. But now they find themselves still at the bottom and resentment is getting a hold of their heart. We are not immune to this problem like them. We face with hardships. We are quick to distance ourselves from God. As I told you, I find myself a bit disillusioned at my state, disappointed with not being further along, and maybe you are as well. Let's get back to the book, and let's see what the Lord has to say to those children of Israel. We will find encouragement in God's word, but we must first wake up out of our slumber. We are asleep. This is the nature of sleep. When you are driving a car and you fall asleep, it is not until you wake up that you realize you had fallen asleep. Maybe you veered off in the road and you hit one of those rubble strips. You know that thing that goes and you wake up. I pray that the message this morning will be one of them spiritual rumble strips for you as you are, if you are spiritually asleep. Let God's word wake us right out of that sleep. As you think back to the time your eyes were first opened to the Lord and your heart burned with new zeal. Where is your compassion now compared to that time? If it has waned, then get ready. God's word is for you this morning. Or maybe you believe that you understand the biblical doctrine of repentance or justification. And you're now ready to offer worship and acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. Sit up straight in your chair because God may have a clarifying word for you. Maybe it's not what you know, but it's about who you know. And we need to be redirected. Malachi's message this morning is directed at the people as a whole, but primarily focused on the priests, the sons of Levi, appointed over the worship of God in the temple and over teaching God's people God's ways. We find that in Malachi 2.1, 2.7, 13, and 3.3. 3. It's, it's all laden throughout this book. The book of Malachi is a book about worship, not just about any worship. It is the worship that is acceptable to God. In order to prove this, let us briefly look at the placement of Malachi in the Hebrew canon. The book of Malachi immediately follows Zechariah. The last chapter of Zechariah makes reference to all the families of the earth going up to Jerusalem to worship the king and celebrate the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was a seven-day celebration to remind God's people that their success in Canaan was wholly on account of the Lord's grace. They were to respond to the character and work of the Lord. Biblical worship is always a response to the work of the Lord. So how then can we respond if we don't know the work of the Lord? Or if we don't remember the work of the Lord? After the book of Zechariah comes Malachi, and Malachi, right after Malachi is Psalms. Remember, I'm not talking about the English version. I'm talking about how the Hebrews laid it out. The book of Psalms was considered Israel's hymnal. It was the songs that expressed their joys and sorrow as a covenant people, sandwiched between the last chapter of Zechariah and the ancient hymn book of Israel is Malachi. 
Malachi is an antithetical picture of Zechariah and the blessed man in Psalm 1. We see what worship looks like at the end of Zechariah and what it sounds like in the Psalms. But like any good teacher, Malachi provides us with example of what it's not. If you want to assess your worship this morning, take it through the grid of Malachi. Use Malachi to take your spiritual temperature. You can use this book to determine if you are spiritually asleep. The book of Malachi is written in a question and answer format. God makes a statement, the children of Israel would ask a smart alecky question, and then the Lord would answer it. His answer will reveal the depravity of their hearts and ours also. If we think like the 5th century Jews did, biblical worship is rooted in our response to the character and work of the Lord. Biblical worship starts with recalling God's character and work. In verses 1 to 5, which we read this morning for our opening, right, not just now, but earlier, is one whole unit. And here Malachi draws our attention to God's love. We can recall any of God's attributes, but Malachi points us to God's love. If these five fifth century Jews were going to get back to biblical worship, then they must first one, recall God's love. It's my first point this morning, recalling God's love. There's a lot of confusion around the subject of love. Often we don't define love the way God does. It spans many generations. Not sure what influenced the distortion of the love more. Maybe it was our over-romanticized view of it, like Sam Cooke's Cupid. And I know I'm dating like, some of you know who Sam Cooke is, but I got examples for the little ones, but don't worry, but you know who Sam Cooke was. And my girl by the temptations, what can make me feel this way? Or Andy Williams can't take my eyes off you. What about the turtles, so happy together? But what about those times when we are not happy? Or maybe it's an other end of the um, pendulum. You know, it swings to the other side, like Tina Turner's anthem, What's Love Got to Do With It? But what, we, what we know is that God's love is more than a second-hand emotion. There's a re recurring theme in all songs and movies. In the movie Jerry Maguire, the major character was a smooth talker and a football player. Rid Tidwell kept saying, show me the money, show me the money. And he continued to say it all throughout the movie. The Israelites in the book of Malachi was just like this football player. But their refrain wasn't show me the money. But their refrain was show us the evidence. The Israelites' heart was so hardened that they could not see God's constant love and care for them. Biblical love is action. First Corinthians declares love is patient and kind and it never fails. God draws Jacob's eyes off of themselves and places it on Edom. God goes into detail about his relationship with Edom. He destroyed Edom's mountains and gave their inheritance to jackals of the wilderness. Edom declares, we will rebuild. But God declares, I will tear down. How can they beat God? 
What does hating Israel, uh, what does hating Esau mean? It means that God is forever working against Edom. Nothing is mentioned about Jacob. We only have the end result. You will say the Lord be magnified beyond the borders of Israel. By implication, God is working for and with Jacob. And the end result, God will preserve Jacob's inheritance and cause him to prosper. God is not only protecting his people, he's limiting the power of Jacob's enemies. How else do we see God's love being magnified beyond the border of Israel? For the New Testament teaches that we love God because he first loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his begotten son. And now in Christ, we Gentiles who were far off are being brought close, near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one. And we Gentiles have been grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree. At this point, you should say, why? Why? For the same reason Jacob was chosen over Esau. He was chosen before they were born, so it was nothing that Jacob did or caused God to shine his favor on him. It was strictly the loving kindness of the Lord. God was not limiting his work to the border of Israel, but had planned to do and to bless all nations. So what does that have to do with biblical worship? Everything. God wants his people to recall his mighty works, which was all motivated by his great love. Israel couldn't reserve their own inheritance, nor could they stay the hand of the enemy. God is the only one who can. And we can't be in fellowship with the holy God because our sinful condition renders it impossible. Only God can reconcile man to himself. Only one person could, a perfect mediator, who could stand between God and man, the God-man, Christ Jesus. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God span. If you were here this morning, we sang that at Calvary. There's a gulf, a mighty gulf between God and man, which cannot be crossed, which cannot be remedied. There's no solution that man has to bring these two parties together. But God himself used Jesus Christ as that bridge to bring them together. Maybe this is your first understanding of that mighty gulf between God and man and how Christ became that bridge that connected God to man. Today you can know the bliss of having your sins forgiven. Does anybody here remember that? Does anybody here remember the first time your eyes were open and the shackles were dropped? Does anybody remember that? That feeling of all is well with my soul. I don't care who's dropping bombs. I don't care who's doing what. All is well with my soul. Today you can have the bliss of having your sins forgiven. You just turn your eyes away from sin and turn them upon Jesus. Put your trust in him today. If you have done this this morning, 
You say, but you didn't call an altar call. I don't have to do that. You can do that right in your seat. You can say, I see it. I repent. And I believe. And the Bible says, you're new. You're new. And if you did that this morning, then please come see us. Talk to us so we can rejoice together. And maybe you're already a believer, though, and you're going through the motions of church as usual, and God has opened up your eyes this morning to this mighty love, his mighty love. Then thank him for his grace and remember your love and serve God's people because you, because he first loved you. And I'm going to go on with my sermon, but, you know, if I was in a different church, because I was talking to two people this morning, if I was in a different church, you know, I would pause right there. You would get up and you would start shouting and you would run to the back and run to the front and you would clap and turn around and then I'll go back to my message. But we're not there today. We're somewhere else. So let's go on to verse five. Amen. Your eyes will see this and you will say the Lord be magnified beyond the borders of Israel. And this has come to pass. The Lord has been magnified beyond the borders of Israel. The Lord's work is no longer confined to the nation of Israel only, but as we have been blessed through the work of the Messiah. Section 2 begins with verse 6. This is the section that I started to read, and it ends in verse 10. The priests are confronted with their hypocritical worship by a question posed to them from the Lord, where's my honor? It's a very simple question. You know, if you ask a child, where are my socks? They tell you over here. Where's the ball? tell you over here. So it's a real simple question. You just have to answer it, but of course they don't. Biblical worship is a response to God's character and work, but how are we, are, how are we to respond? How, are we, how, how do we respond biblically to this biblical love we've heard? Well, we have to rest in God's care the rest in God's care. The priests dedicated their lives to studying the law. In the law it says, for the Lord your God is in your midst and a great awesome God. Deuteronomy 7.21. And in Deuteronomy 10.21, Moses said, he is your praise and he is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you which your eyes have seen and God has not stopped there. He sent his only begotten son to live a perfect life and to offer a perfect sacrifice for your sins and mine. Not only that, Christ is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you and for me. He has purchased us with his blood and sealed us through his Holy Spirit. We rest in the fact that, we all, th that all things are summed up in Christ. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring a charge to God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Like Paul, I'm convinced. And I want you to be convinced. Not just me. I'm preaching God's word. You are listening to God's word. We are interacting with God's word. It is God's word that brings us together as a family. You don't have to say anything. But in your hearts, 
Maybe you can declare with me. Like Paul, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No condemnation now, I dread. Jesus is all in him, is my alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, I invite you to come and rest in him. Rest in God's care. Don't be like those priests in the book of Malachi. Don't say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. It is not to be despised. It is, to, it is where we find help. Oh, yes, it is not fulfilling. It is not fulfill our worldly desires. That's not what it's there for. But it's to, to satisfy the longing of our souls, to be free from sin and forever with Christ. Let's not be like the priests in the book of Malachi, who not only say that the table of the Lord needs to be despised, but the food is to be despised also. If you have tasted the goodness of the Lord, then you know how satisfying that spiritual food of Christ can give to you. It can be to you. Let's rest in the finished work of Christ and count our blessings. Let's count them one by one. The priests dishonored the Lord because they violated God's law. If we're going to practice biblical worship, we must as the priest was dishonoring God by presenting animals of sacrifice that they have been declared unfit, unacceptable, and evil by the Lord in the book of Leviticus, as well as the book we just read, 22-22 Leviticus. God is holy, and God requires a holy sacrifice. Only God determines what is holy and acceptable. Only God determines what is holy. And the priest could not substitute what they thought was sufficient. Well, a better understanding of the Hebrew word honor would help us see it clearly. The word honor means something heavy. I'm wearing, I used to wear a Fitbit. I think that's a better illustration. I used to wear a Fitbit. It tracks my steps and, it, and my heart rate. It's lightweight. Most of the time, I don't even realize I'm wearing it until it vibrates. I don't notice. I don't consider it, and it's so lightweight, it doesn't even alter my lifestyle. I only consider it maybe about 2% of the week when I have to take it off, wash dishes, take a bath, whatever. But otherwise, I don't even notice this on my arm. Now, if we add 50 pounds to this, whoa, I would have to adjust my whole life. 50 pounds, right? 50 pounds. I would have to adjust my whole life from opening the car door, how I use my fork. Every decision I will make will be made in consideration of this 50-pound Apple Watch. I would not be able to ignore it. How do you even put on your shoes with a 50 pounds on your I don't even know. They didn't consider the weightiness of the Lord, though, and their worship started to reflect their view of God. How about you? Have your worship become pedestrian? Has the weight of the Lord affected your life and purpose? Is God and his word just as light as a Fitbit? 
Is he heavy enough in your soul to affect more than 2% of your life? Do you have enough God to pause before a meal and give him an hour of half-hearted worship on a Sunday morning? If this is you, consider his love and repent. Ask God to open up your eyes to the grandeur of, all, of the Almighty. In verse 10, God has a wish, a desire, if you like. His desire is that one among them would shut the gates and stop this useless or even evil fire from being in his altar. Listen, if you're going to do it half-heartedly, don't do it at all. My grandmother used to say something else, but it's not appropriate for the pulpit. So I'll just change it. If you're going to do it half-heartedly, don't, don't, don't bother. Don't bother. It doesn't benefit you, and God is certainly not looking on, on it down in favor. So just don't bother. Do it completely or don't do it at all. This is a call. This is a call to spiritual leaders who witness this. They were called to do something and not stand idly while others dishonor the Lord. Pray that God will give those who are spiritual leaders boldness to proclaim the word of God and to defend against insiders who dishonor the Lord. I don't want to gloss over that. The leadership in every church needs prayer because we have a tendency to be cowards. And we have to make spiritual decisions. And so we're asking for your help. How can you help me? By coming, talking to me? No, pray. Pray for the spiritual leaders because we are only as strong as your leaders, right? Think about it. As a nation, we are only as strong as the armed forces. A weak nation, a weak armed forces makes a weak nation. So, and spiritually speaking, we're only as strong as the leaders. So, that's my appeal. Pray for us so we can stand as men and not cower as cowards. So, we recall God's love, we rest in God's care. And in verses 11 to 14, we revere God's name. God's question in this last section, should I receive that from your hand? Verse 13, the priests were profaning the Lord's table. They were also saying how tiresome it is and too much work to do this. Let's just present whatever was in front of us to the Lord. We don't want that extra walk home to, to get an acceptable sacrifice. Let's just take what we have right here. One priest, one priest probably said, I saw this dead one on the road. It doesn't matter. I'll put it on this altar. When they did this and the other priests allowed this to happen, they were reflecting the vulgar attitude about God and his glory. Vulgar, meaning common. You know, it's just, who cares? It's just the Lord. Those priests were commissioned to uphold God's commandments, but they were breaking the third commandment. In Wilhelm L. Brocco's book, Christian reasonable service, he defines vain as that which is without purpose, unsuitable, thoughtlessness, irreverent, careless, frivolous, and without a holy objective, thereby endangering an irreverable impression of God in others. These priests were in, engendering an irreverent impression of God to those who came to the temple. The Lord's table presented his name and his glory. Abraco also wrote, that the sixth 
way we can break this commandment is to have the name of a being partaker of a covenant, but does not live accordingly. Thus causing others to blaspheme the doctrine and truth of godliness. But these priests aren't the only ones who take the Lord's name in vain. If any of us are going to be as partakers of the covenant of grace, we must live accordingly at all times, not causing others to blaspheme the doctrine of truth and godliness. Anyone at any time who breaks this law is doomed to eternity in hell. So we conclude that we are condemned before God by the third commandment. We are men most miserable. Who shall deliver us from this death sentence? Only a person who lived a perfect life and never broke the third commandment. Only Christ can deliver us from this body of death. These priests was to revere God's name and not bring lame and sick animals that were probably stolen to sacrifice on his altar. God would not accept these offerings for two reasons. One, because his name is feared among the nations. We find this theme throughout the Bible. Psalm 8.1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent or how majestic is your name in all the earth. David encourages the congregation to sing the praises of God's name. Psalm 18.49. The second petition in the disciples' prayers, hallowed be thy name. The second reason God won't receive their offering is because he's a king. We don't give half-hearted gifts to our president, and the president is not even a king. The president can't give the word and our head would be cut off. A king can. Mark Twain's de de depiction of King Edward is a portrait of the most compassionate king ever born to England. He switches places with a homeless person to learn how the common man of his day lived. One day while he was in prison, he saw two women being burned alive for being Baptists. This event changed the course of his life. He said, that which I've seen in that one little moment will never go out from my memory, but will abide there, and I shall see it all the days and dream of it all the nights till I die. He was a king. So this may not have been the most horrific thing he ever witnessed, but it was the most memorable. This event marked him. It compelled him to consistently show compassion to the weak. King, king Edward was a good king, but the God of the Bible is described in Malachi as a great king. King Edward was a king over England, but Zechariah 14.9 says, and the Lord will be king over the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, in his name, the only one. He will come to his people. In Zechariah 9, 9, Israel is told that they should rejoice because their king is coming to them. He is just and endowed with salvation. He will be humbled and mounted on a colt. This prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In Matthew and Luke's gospel, we see the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and the people shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Biblical worship recalls God's love, responds to God's name, reveres his name, and hopes for a coming king. The saints in the Old Testament look forward to a Messiah. He came into the world first as a baby, born of the Virgin Mary. 
And the saints of the New Testament look forward to the coming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Are you looking forward to it? I was talking to someone this morning. And they asked me how I was. And I wanted to give them a stand. Oh, I'm blessed of the Lord, blah, 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 blah. I wanted to say all those different things. I said, I'm not so good. I'm looking for heaven. What, what, what is it? Something, did my mom die? No, 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 nothing deep like that. Just the cares of this world will be over when we see Jesus. Nothing really profound. Biblical worship starts with God. In Malachi, we first consider God's love that extends to all nations. Let us consider our king. A king is not a president. He is not elect. He holds the office until death. But king's words are never overruled when he says he does. This is an earthly king. But when we talk about our great king, there's a huge chasm between an earthly king and the king of kings. He will hold his office forever because he lives forever. Our king not only identifies with our infirmities, he has tasted death and the grave for us. But the attribute that separates all other kings with our great king is his love. Our great king is gracious to us because of his loving kindness. Our great king is the final authority and he is coming back with his saints to rule the whole world. In light of God's love and his kingship, what is the level of the honor toward our king that you give to him this morning? What's your level? Have you this day or any other Sunday offered half-hearted worship to the God of Jacob? Have you or your actions reveal a half-hearted attitude? Is it a burden to meet with God and his people? Or what's the big deal about dressing up for Sunday anyway? Is it is just church? It's not something important like a wedding or a graduation. Or God requires too much of me. If God is not your first thought day by day and night, repent and ask him to give you the grace to delight in him and his law. We are so grateful for people who do things for us. If, for instance, someone came and just renovated your whole house, didn't even ask you, put 50, 60, 70,000 dollars in your house, renovated it, you say, oh, this is so wonderful. Thank you so much. What do you want? I don't want anything. It's just a gift. We say, oh, thank you so much. But the God of heaven renovated our heart. And we are heaven bound. There is no thing that's going to take us and derail us. But yet, we don't have that same love and appreciation that we would have for someone who put $70,000 renovation on a house. Come on. Come on, saints. Let's think through this one. Let's walk out of here this morning with a renewed heart. Let's walk out of here this morning with a joy that's unspeakable. Let's walk out of here this morning with a new appreciation for what the Lord has done in our life. 
We have a hope, a hope beyond the grave, a hope of a coming king. So, again, we're a quiet group, and that's fine. But in your heart, I'm going to ask you to say this with me. In your heart. You can say it as loud as you can in your heart. Nobody won't hear you. Surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and give you praise for your love. That should be the theme of our song, Lord. So we are so grateful. But for some reason, Lord, we look at your love with small eyes. Give us large eyes that we may see more loves, that we may see more love, and that we would give in, in turn more love to you. But then the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.